Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen, listen for, for the, the word. word. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our podcast today. Today is what I call the soap opera version. Um, <laughs> we, uh, we're in Mark uh, chapter 6, verses 14 through 29, and this is the beheading of John the Baptist. And this is one of those, as, as you well know, especially the way Mark depicts it, it's so detailed and it just really reads like it came out of a soap opera. <laughs> um, so, Alan, why don't you go ahead and kind of put this into some context for us? I'll do my best. <laughs> uh, and I was telling uh, Christy before we started, you know, to be honest with you, before today, before my preparation for today, I really didn't have much use for this passage, but hopefully we can... Uh, we can shed some light on it. I do think it's one that we would almost automatically jump over and preach on just about anything else. I've it's, never preached a sermon on this passage. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. go ahead. Let's, let's give us some insight. All right. So we start off, I think, once again, uh, with we have a problem with the lectionary. The way the lectionary divides the passages um, really kind of, I think, almost creates part of our problem with this passage. Now, we have to recognize, of course, part of the issue is a practical one. How many verses of Scripture can you actually right. read in one in one service, right? But uh, standing on its own, the account of John's martyrdom just doesn't fit in the overall gospel story that Mark is crafting here, you know? And so, you know, it just seems to stand out like a sore thumb, it and does. you're like, what is this? Now, some have suggested that Mark's intent was just simply to explain the fact that John had been executed and thus Herod believed him resurrected in Jesus. Mm -hmm. And that was just simply that, that. So John indulges in this story just for that reason. I don't buy that because, you know, authors were, were, were very much aware of using space in terms of writing a document in those days. And, it, you know, that was something that was significant. Right. So there, I think there was a, more of a reason than that. Um, some have tried to explain what's going on here with the idea that this may have been a pre-existing narrative that Mark incorporated into his gospel account. And, you know, that's not really something we can say for sure, but it's an interesting idea. I, I think a more helpful approach is to recognize that the lectionary has taken apart what should be a Mark and yeah, sandwich. Yeah, I agree. Many argue that this part of Mark's gospel actually should begin mm -hmm. with the mission of the 12 in Mark 6.6 6, and end with their return in Mark 6.30. And so the mission of the 12 and their return frames the account mm -hmm. of John's execution. And I think this will have major implications for our mm -hmm. interpretation of the passage. I agree. I agree. And I think that's a much healthier way to look at it. So when yeah. you read this, um, put it in a context. Yes, indeed. Uh, uh, yeah. Yes, yeah. Indeed. All right, let's keep going. So we also have a, a fairly unique situation with this story in that not only do Matthew and Luke recount the story, but so does Josephus in the Antiquities of the Jews, uh, book 18. Now, what makes this unique is that they all recount it in different ways. Yes, yes. <laughs> now, Matthew and Luke both have John in prison by Herod for what seems to be an extended time. Matthew presupposes this when he recounts the episode of John in prison sending his disciples to Jesus to ask if he was the one to come in Matthew 11. And, and we don't have the account of John's beheading until Matthew 14. Luke reports that Herod had John in prison for rebuking him about Herodias, before Jesus began his ministry, and even before Luke reports John's, Jesus' baptism. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, it's almost like, who baptized Jesus? Right, right, right. It's kind of strange. Um, Matthew also says that Herod wanted to execute John, but didn't because he was afraid of the crowds, whereas Mark implies that that that. Herod tried to, well, not only implies, he says Herod tried to protect him. Right, right. There's this sense that Herod recognizes he's this holy man. Right. That would be a, maybe a bad omen to right, execute right. him. Yeah, yeah. Now, Luke doesn't include all the salacious details about John's execution. Correct. but Neither he, does Josephus, by the way. No, no, that's yeah. right. That's right. But he implies that it had happened in his very mm -hmm. short comment in Luke chapter 9. Now, on the other hand, with, with Mark, we get the impression that John's imprisonment was fairly short. That may or may not be accurate, but that's the impression you get just reading through the gospel. 
And it's interesting, I think, that while the Synoptic Gospels report that Herod imprisoned John for rebuking him about his domestic affairs, and in fact, Matthew and Mark do tell a similar story about how John was executed, Mm -hmm. Josephus says that Herod did this for political reasons because he was afraid that John would start a revolt. Right. What do we make of all this? And I'm not sure we have the means of sorting out all of this uh, in order to know what really happened. Right. We just have a very interesting look at sort of um, all facets facets of the gospel tradition, not only in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but also from the standpoint of a secular historian, Josephus. Right, right, exactly. Um, and it is it is interesting, even when I think of histories today, what's included, what's not included. Right. Um, and and then, of course, this this story, this intensely detailed story. Yes. Where, well, you know, when we talk about Mark as being going all the time, and he'll stop and pull apart That's these right. stories. He does it again here. Yeah. So let's just, anyway, but yes, it seems to be at least historical fact and that we can actually put hang it on that, yeah that, we can uh, say that john was, was executed, executed because josephus reports it. yeah yeah how how and why it happened we don't know well, for sure it, it, maybe herod doesn't fully know you know maybe <laughs> yeah, right. it's a whole mix of things yeah right. okay keep going exactly so our lesson for this week begins with the statement that king herod heard of it for jesus name had become known. And it's unclear what the it is that Herod has heard of, but in Mark's gospel, it would seem that the mission of the 12 had the desired effect of extending Mm -hmm. Jesus' ministry. And so apparently what Herod heard was that Jesus and perhaps also his disciples were working miraculous deeds. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this then leads to the speculation that Jesus was actually the resurrected John, may have reflected a popular notion that there would be a prophet of the Lord at the end of history who would be killed and then resurrected, and as a result of that would have the power to work miracles. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, uh, you know, to me, as, as, as you read this passage, you also have to keep in mind the gospel as a whole. And so to right. some extent, when we begin with this section, this part about the speculations about Jesus, you know, in one respect, it continues a theme that really is woven throughout the gospels. And that's the question, who is Jesus? Mm-hmm. We've seen that that really runs from the beginning to the end of the right. gospel. Who is Jesus? Right, right. And the notions that he was John resurrected or Elijah or one of the prophets actually precisely foreshadows the answer that the disciples give to Jesus' question in chapter 8, mm-hmm. who do people say that I am? They give the exact same answer mm-hmm. as we have here. And so I think that's intentional. I don't think that's accidental. I think And so right. I think mm-hmm. there's kind of a connection there between right. what what you know, what people were saying about Jesus in this episode and then what the disciples right, answer later. Right, That's something Calvin picks up on too. Mm-hmm. And he's like, he at least tries to go and say, look, this is this is trying to indicate who Jesus is mm-hmm. and that Jesus is not John the Baptist. Right. And, and frankly, that everyone should know that because of this, uh, right. because of this incident. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Now, another issue that we have to deal with here, a a historical issue, is that Mark's references to Herod, Herodias, and the daughter of Herodias are imprecise, to say the least, Mm -hmm. and perhaps even badly mistaken. Could be, yeah. Now, part of the problem is that the family of Herod the Great was a tangled mess, Mm -hmm. to say the least. Um, Many of them were named Herod. Yes, yes. (laughs) But also there was a great deal of intermarriage within the family, and so that just complicates things. So perhaps maybe we can excuse the confusion on the part of the gospel tradition. Mm -hmm. So in the first place, we're talking about Herod Antipas, Mm -hmm. He was a son of Herod the Great, mm-hmm. who was not King correct, Herod, correct. but rather he was the client ruler of Galilee mm-hmm. under Roman authority. Herodias was mm-hmm. a granddaughter of Herod the Great and who had married another of his sons, whom Mark calls Philip, mm-hmm. but Josephus tells us that he was called Herod. Right. And we shouldn't confuse this Philip with Philip the Tetrarch, who ruled as a client king over the territory north, northwest of the Sea of right, Galilee right. and west of the Jordan River, right. who's mentioned in the New Testament. Right. I've seen it, I've seen it in, in attempts to do family trees as Herod Philip. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I, sure and, and that seems to be the case. I mean, apparently there was a Herod who may have been also known as Philip. But, mm-hmm. I mean, like I said, many of the people in the Herodian family had the same names. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. Yeah. 
Now, you know, um, part of the problem then was that uh, John was rebuking Herod Antipas for marrying his brother's wife. Well, in truth, the Torah, as it was interpreted in that day, would have prohibited both of her marriages because her original husband was also also her her uncle. uncle. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) And so if that's not enough confusion, then to add to the confusion, the best reading of Mark 6.22 identifies the young woman who performs the dance as Herodias. Right. But Josephus tells us her name was actually Salome. So, you know, we've got quite a bit of problem going on here with just the historical information. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, there is a variant in the Greek manuscripts that corrects Mark here to read the daughter of Herodias, mm-hmm. and Mar- Matthew also adopts that correction of, of, of the mistake right, in, Mark right. for, in Matthew 14, 6. But again, I think given the unusual nature of the Herodian family, maybe we can excuse the mistakes in getting all the names well, right. <laughs> and I think in, term, in, in terms of the, the female names, there's there's a sense that it really doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. I mean, there really is a sense of belittling women and really not recording their names accurately. Mm-hmm. And who knows? She might have been known as the little Herodias. Ha, ha, ha. Who right. knows? Right. But that... Um, I think that's not uncommon, unfortunately. With, well, with given, women given her behavior here, I, I think being known as the little Herodias would be justified. Uh, exactly, yeah. exactly. Now, uh, friends, I, I'm not taking, that's just speculation. I'm not taking that from any actual yeah. research. No, no, but, right, right. But just there is a tendency to really not consider women to be mm-hmm. that important. To, I mean, we know half the time they're not even named. So. Yeah. Now, in light of what happens here, I think we we also need to point out there's an interesting parallel between this story and the story of Elijah's interactions with Ahab and Jezebel. Mm -hmm. In the story of Elijah, Jezebel is the main antagonist. Mark's account of John's execution has two anti-heroes, so to speak, in the persons of Herodias and Salome, one who's willing to stop at nothing to gain power, and the other who's willing to do anything, including debasing herself by a lewd dance Mm -hmm. at a stag party to please her mother. And, and the, you know, the final gruesome detail in our story that the soldier gave the platter with John's head to Salome and she took it to her mother. I mean, think about that. Oh, yeah. It's you know, just that, gruesome. that only reinforces the image of these two as schemers willing to do anything for political advantage. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, Herod Antipas is portrayed really as a pathetic figure, uh, subject to the whims of Herodias and Salome, bound by convention regarding saving face, mm-hmm. and prisoner to his own wildly variable emotions. And we'll see more on that mm-hmm. later. So mm-hmm. it's it's kind of a it's kind of an interesting comparison with with Elijah's interactions with Jezebel and Ahab. Jezebel seems to have been the main driving force right. behind Ahab well, as well. You know, I took it mentally again. This is speculation to Adam and Eve. Oh, really? I, I, you know, my thought was, especially in in blaming women for mm, this whole yeah. event, this yeah. whole series of events. Yeah. And Calvin actually considers Herodias the the architect of the whole thing. Well, in Mark's gospel, that's the way she's portrayed. Yeah. yeah. And um, so, again, it's the evil woman enticing the man who apparently is unable to say no. I don't I don't quite get it. But the, again, yeah. the female enticer. So I actually took it to Adam and Eve. But I love Jezebel as well. So mm. I, I think interesting. I think we're meant to see Antipas, Herod Antipas here as a pathetic figure, as a weak you know, he's not really he wants to be a king, but he's no he has no real uh um personal right. strength. Right, right. Yeah. I think that I think that's fair. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Keep going yeah. on. So now one of the things we notice if you compare the stories in the three gospels in the three synoptic gospels is that of all the synoptics mark elaborates on the details of this event mm-hmm. much more than the others he offers the quote from john rebuking herod it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife now matthew and luke also mentioned that he had rebuked herod but they don't give the exact quote uh, Mark tells us that Herodias was the one who had the grudge against John mm-hmm. um, yeah. in verse 19. Only Mark tells us that Herod had a rather ambiguous attitude toward John. He both feared John, considering him a righteous and holy man, but was also greatly perplexed by John. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Mark elaborates on the details of the birthday banquet as the opportunity, perhaps for Herodias, to carry out her revenge, it's not said. And he elaborates on the guests at the party. Uh, Mark has Herod so pleased, which <laughs> I think, you know, we can, we can only imagine what's going on in Herod's mind, you know, uh, with his stepdaughter dancing in front of him. He's so pleased by Salome's dance that he offers her whatever she wished, not once but twice in Mark's account. 
And so again, all these details are just piling up the narrative mm-hmm. tension. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, in Mark twenty six twenty three, he says, "Even half of my kingdom," which <laughs> reminds us of uh, King Ahasuerus and and mm-hmm. Esther. Yes, Esther, yes, Esther it 5, does. 30, yes, it does. Five, three. So now, while while Matthew also includes the detail that it was Herodias's idea to ask for John's head, Mark's account is so much more vivid in the dialogue between Herodias and Salome, uh, and uh, you know when she leaves uh, Herod's presence to ask her mother what she should ask for, what she should wish for. <laughs> <laughs> and so, while Herodias simply urged her daughter to ask for John's head, Salome is the one who adds the detail on a platter. Ah, that's a good detail. Yeah. Yeah. And so, finally, only Mark tells us that Herod was deeply grieved, but compelled to follow through because of his regard for her oaths and because of the guests. So, you know, we have all these details mm-hmm. that are mm-hmm. just really, I mean, it is a gruesome story, but it's told with 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 incredible vividness. I in know Mark's that's why I call it the 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 soap opera. Yes, I mean, indeed. it's got that kind of bizarre. Yes, I mean, it's such a bizarre story when you really think about how hideous this is. It is. That it, it comes off as some honestly comes off as so bizarre that someone would make it up that it kind of has to be true. It's mm-hmm. kind of got that yeah. that essence yeah. about it, right? Well, and again, you know, we see. I think we see Mark's. Uh, literary craft in that he is building the tension of the narrative. Yes, you know, we know right. what's going to come, but he delays that by all these details until finally we get to the to the culmination of the story with John's execution. And we've seen this before. You know, we saw this with um, with the, the sandwich of of Jairus's daughter and mm-hmm, the woman mm-hmm. with the uh, hemorrhages. Now, the question in my mind is why Mark was so keen to draw so much attention to what you rightly call a hideous story. And I think there's several possibilities. I think the connection with the speculations about Jesus' identity in Mark 8.27 and between this passage and Mark 8.27 may also connect John's death with Jesus' fate. Since in that section of Mark Mark chapter 8, Jesus predicts his passion for the first time immediately following that dialogue. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, while on the one hand, Mark's death, uh, John's death seems to be a defeat at the hands of evil people. On the other hand, Jesus' death and resurrection constitutes a vindication not only of him, but we might even extend that mm-hmm. to say of also of John and perhaps even all the martyrs of mm-hmm. the faith. Mm-hmm. So that may be one one part of what's going on right, here in this right. story that, that Mark wants us to see there is more more yet to come, you know, in, in the in the mm-hmm, crucifixion mm-hmm. of Jesus. Now, the other another possibility is that seeing this story as part of a Mark and Sandwich uh, suggests that if we read this episode with the frame of the mission of the twelve on each mm-hmm. side and beginning and ending it, it may have been intended to raise implications about what those who carry out Jesus' ministry will face. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as we see later in Mark chapter 13, you know, Jesus warns them that at best they'll face those who will only listen to them when it suits them, as, as John did, and as Herod did with John. And beyond that, you know, they would face the possibility that the powers that be would threaten their lives and even send them to their deaths. Mm-hmm. And so that may be another aspect of what's going on here is that Mark wants to sort of uh, call attention to the danger of carrying out Jesus' ministry, even in the time of his own writing mm-hmm. and for his mm-hmm. audience. Mm-hmm. Now, finally, I think this episode highlights a theme that comes to the fore later in Mark, and that's the subversive character of the kingdom of God. Uh, the powers that be, you know, we've got King Herod, mm-hmm. we've got Herodias, we've got mm-hmm. Salome, who by her powers can can so influence the king right. that he offers her up to half of his kingdom. You know, these are definitely so, quote unquote, powerful people in the day, right? But they're threatened by by John, by his person, by what he was saying to them, mm-hmm. by his rec- re- reminder that they were doing what was against the law, even though they were supposedly Jews, right? Right, right. A- and, and they're also threatened by Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom and his ministry that demonstrated its powerful presence. And so to me, I think one of the, one of the main themes of the kingdom of God in the Gospels, and sometimes it's more subtle, sometimes it's not brought out mm-hmm. quite explicitly. We're left to sort of infer it, and I think that's the case here. Uh, I think one of the most important 
themes is that the kingdom of God is the ultimate deconstruction of all right. human right. pretensions to power. And so I think, you know, at the time that Mark was writing this, his readers may very well have known what had happened to these people. Right. Right? Um, Herod Antipas, Herodias, and Salome all come across really almost as kind of pathetic figures who are to some extent bound by and ultimately undone mm-hmm. by right. their own designs for right. power. Right. And, and so, you know, Herodias wanted to have John executed, but Mark says she could not. And she only could achieve that by debasing her own daughter. Think about that. Yeah, yeah. It's, a mother it's, it's and her really, own daughter. It's really horrible. It's terrible. But, and, 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 of course, the other people would have known at this time how completely corrupt the whole family oh, was. Yes. I mean, everyone's oh, yes. offing everybody else. I, exactly. was, I was looking at the... Well, I, Herod himself had two of his sons and, executed and because he thought they were trying to... Exactly. Had, had sights on his the, throne. That's the whole point. Is yeah. this, is, this is a very corrupt... Yeah. royal family and they're in cahoots with rome which isn't even better because by the way herod is um herod ends up dying after he's involved with caligula and if you know anything mm-hmm. about caligula I, you know yep. he's one of the very most corrupt of the roman emperors so it's just, and and perhaps paranoid and maybe even psychotic I, I paranoid and psychotic <laughs> yes. little boots yeah. he was yeah. so anyway there's it, it's really really pulling out i think at 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 the real corruption of yes. the secular world here. Well, and 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 the powers that be and, mm-hmm. that were that were opposing not only John but also Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, and I think this also kind of foreshadows what happens with Jesus later on in the gospel. I do too, and and I think that's why it's why he draws it out to make it so hideous. Mm-hmm. You can't mm-hmm. get it out of your mind. Right, it is so bad. You're just, you're, it's just, it's just horrible. Yeah. Um, but I think it, it pulls it out. Instead of just saying someone died, mm-hmm. or someone was executed. I mean, it really is off-putting. It's drawn out. Yeah. yeah. So much so that it is off-putting. Yeah. yeah. Now, you know, not only not only does Herodias stoop to just, you know, unthinkable uh, depths, you know, to try to achieve her designs for power, but Herod Antipas, as you alluded to, tried to lobby Rome for the honor of using the title king. He's called king here, but he was not a king, and he right. could not use that yeah. title. So he he tried to to lobby Rome for the honor of using the title king, at, which they had actually just granted to Herod Agrippa in Judea. This was right. many years later. Uh, yes. Right, right. But Agrippa accused him of conspiring against Caligula, and Caligula, being the paranoid psychologist he was had Antipas exiled to Spain exactly so you know again I think we're meant to see these powers that be are pathetic figures who are undone by their own designs for power and 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 part of this is 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 contributing I think to this theme again sometimes it's not quite so explicit sometimes it's Mm -hmm. a little more uh, subtle that the kingdom of God is the ultimate deconstruction of all human pretensions yeah. to yeah, power. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I agree. So this is, in other words, this is a lot deeper than the soap opera thing, that this has a yes, much indeed. deeper theological. It's purpose. much deeper than I probably have given it credit for up to now myself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, friends, um, uh, it, it, this is kind of interesting to see what the reformers do with this. So um, we'll be back. Yes, sounds good. Hi, friends. We're back, and we're going to let Christy have a chance to share with us the insights she gained from some of the reformers she looked at. So take it away, Christy. Yeah. Hi, everybody. So the main pieces I looked at really were mostly Calvin's commentaries today, although I picked up a handful of pieces from other reformers. And you know, there's kind of a general overall understanding of this passage, and they look at it in terms of the battle between good and evil. Mm. Um, and ultimately, that this evil that's caused by human sin. Um, and uh, so Calvin and Luther and others recognize that this complete corruption of human behavior that is inside of this story and its quants and its consequences versus the promises of Christ um, that'll be raised from the dead. And interestingly enough, and I, I kind of um, in this, Calvin actually puts quite a bit of emphasis on the disciples at the end as being mm. an example of 
um, if you will, an early example of the kingdom, if you will, this this idea the kingdom is 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 here, and this presence of the disciples who have to be just angry and normally vindictive in terms of their humanity, but they don't live into that. They live into into the, the, their discipleship. Now, I don't. Well, know. and we should note these are disciples of John. Yes. Not disciples of Jesus. I, well, yeah, and I'm not sure that Calvin made that delineated that difference. Right. Um, but, but that's what that's what the text of Mark implies. That yeah. John had his own had his own disciples. Yeah, and I think I think Cal, uh, Calvin jumped to that next step and and, and said these are these Christ are Christian disciples because yeah. Calvin also says that this this incident is actually actually kind of a proof text that Christ is there. If in other words, that this is this is a reminder that because John baptized Christ and that's uh-huh. why John is famous anyway. Uh-huh. This is again, I think there's a little bit of assumption that comes on top of that coming in from a Christian reading, mm-hmm. if you will, from a um that he's coming in saying, "Look, they this that's the only reason they know about John is because of Christ and therefore that John has any notoriety at all is because God appeared at Christ's baptism, yeah. and uh, therefore that. So it gives a little. These are also disciples of Christ. At yeah. least that's how I understood okay. Calvin. Interesting. Calvin in this. So, yeah. um, and that that really because uh, mind you, again, <laughs> I know I say it every week. He collapses I this. Know. Yeah, right? he collapses Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Exactly. Yeah. Of course, it's there's not as much to collapse here because this is a Mark story. <laughs> right. Uh, Matthew has a lot of the details, but not nearly the extent. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, and this corruption, it really comes about in all the things. Alan's already mentioned them, but the dancing, you know, this, this, this lewd dancing, the feasting and drunkenness, the unlawful marriage of Herodias to Herod, the lust for Herod, of Laird for Salome and the pledge to give her anything, um, not wanting to lose face in front of the court, the beheading of a holy man, and then just the leaving of the body. So all these things are mentioned in there, as we talked about earlier, and Calvin picks up on all of this it just excessive corruption. Well, and, you know, um, you, know you, you get the, I mean, if you read history and the history of the Rodian family, you recognize they're Jewish in name only. Oh yeah. <laughs> There's nothing about their lifestyle right, right. that is Jewish. They're, they're, they don't even make any pretension of trying to observe the Torah in the way they live their lives. Right, right, right. And, and this this really just kind of lays it out for us. It does lay it out for us. And um, but as I said earlier, despite the level of corruption of everybody, it is Herodias that is that leader, mm-hmm. that female seductress um, uh, pattern. He pulls out again. Uh, you could be hard on Calvin for just jumping to that, but that's pretty typical of the early modern era. Well, and yeah. I'm I'm not sure it's unfair here to be honest with you. I, I I'm I'm sensitive to the uh, to the tendency to blame the evil woman. You know that's yeah, that's yeah. that's yeah. way too prevalent in our even still in our culture today. But I think with 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 characters like Jezebel and Herodias, it might well have been you know deserved. Oh, you might get in trouble with that with some feminists, but yeah. that's another day. Okay, <laughs> well because there's such a tendency of, of, of even writing the narrative that way mm-hmm. and 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 then people to draw into that narrative and and then then really condemning the the, the women for it and yeah. going if you it's sort of excusing the men yeah excusing the men yeah. and um well and i wasn't trying to imply yeah, that at no all. I, I know you i know you weren't but there really is uh you know why why did herod have the wherewithal is just this kind of pathetic guy to yeah. say uh you know, we're not, this is not a good idea. We're not mm-hmm. going to do this, but he just goes along. And so is his guilt equal to Herodias's guilt or Salomis? I would say it's all corruption. They're, they're, they're just, all equally yeah, guilty. Yeah. Equally guilty. <laughs> yeah. 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 But anyway, it's, an, it's, 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 it definitely, um, that's a whole space we could talk about mm-hmm. at some point, but, um, uh, they juxtapose though this great corruption by John the Baptist, who is really the innocent martyr in the affair, you know, trying to uphold, uh, good values. Um, and, uh, well, it was very clearly, I mean, it, it, the, you know, marrying your brother's wife was, was you know, outside mm-hmm. of the Le- Levitical kind of situation where the, the brother died childless, you know, that was just not, that was not okay. Right. Right. Exactly. It wasn't okay at all. Um, so, and the, the big thing for Calvin then, as, as I mentioned, was the disciples who, dis- who, who take the body and place it in a tomb, which allows 
the body then to be risen with the coming of Christ in the end. So this this kind of uh, that this was indeed the act that that overcame in in Calvin's ah, world um, the hideousness. Interesting. So, uh, you know, in 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 the commentators I looked at, they saw Jesus' resurrection as sort of the final resolution of the, the sort of the, the crisis introduced mm. by the death of John the Baptist. Yeah, it's like yeah. Jesus, Jesus resurrection then is the, is the, uh, you know, it resolves the tension that, that's kind of left right. hanging there. And that's but, what I, but Calvin says that it's, it's, it's his burial right. that in, in anticipation of the resurrection. Right. So that's something similar. Yeah, It is similar, but I think it reflects also, uh, that these reformers do tend to still interpret in smaller spaces. They Mm -hmm. don't tend to take, I say that they tend to lump together, but they tend to, to narrow the, the Mm -hmm. the events a little bit more. They don't take the macro look at the gospel as a whole. Right, right, right. Um, um, so, uh, the other theme, um, you know, so why is it included in the text is, is, is the big question here. Um, and, as I said, Calvin takes this idea is to emphasize the significance of Christ's baptism. Hmm. Um, that uh, that they wanted to point out that this incident that everybody knew about was ultimately to point at Christ's baptism, um, and and that that would overcome this kind of heinous heinous mm-hmm. crime. So ah, and, and it's very right. interesting. Well, and and that makes sense. I mean, you know, because the, the the baptism, the transfiguration, the resurrection, those are kind of the the cross and resurrection. Those are kind of the high points of Mark's gospel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. Um, so, um, and then I also had uh, pointed out um, one of the interesting side pieces. Now, this kind of moves on. So, this is kind of the general thing, and I think I incorporated the other observations within Alan's discussion that he made. You know, the, also noted. Um, that Josephus was there um, and uh, had commented on this. And um, um, that uh, uh, interesting scripture analysis that Herod's belief that uh, John was a holy man, um, but it wasn't clear what power they thought John had. I mean, so there was a little bit of emphasis on this beginning point. But could, could I think th- there was even some thought that maybe John could do miracles, miraculous events, and that he was a threat in that very... Right, well, and that's that that's that sort of popular Jewish notion that there would be this end times prophet who would be killed, and then he would be resurrected, and right. in his resurrected right. form, he would have these, these right. powers exactly. that would threaten them. Exactly. Yeah, definitely. Um, so that's kind of the, the gist. But then there's these... What comes out for reformers, which is interesting, are, are some interesting theological points. But... And aside first, one of the first is Calvin is often accused of being very anti, um, anti-parties, anti-dance, anti-everything. And yet he actually says in here, no, birthdays are really a good thing. Birthday really? parties are even a good thing as long as they don't degrade themselves to this right. kind of thing, right. as long as it's for the glory of God, which I thought was interesting yeah. because there is this sense that that Calvin was just so dour and there could be really no kind of celebration. So, and, and remember that's later Calvinism, the later Calvinist church takes it that way. But Calvin himself says they just should reflect the glory of God. Mm. So it's a funny little aside in here, but yet I think an interesting point when we're talking about Calvin. Well, and you know, that that's interesting because, because what I read was that in the Jewish, in the Jewish world, birthday celebrations were considered to be pagan. Oh, interesting. And so, you know, you'd think that, I mean, so Calvin is breaking with that sort of and saying, you know, there's nothing really wrong with this. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, as a whole, you know, we look at our Christian tradition, we're recognizing Mm -hmm. uh, that we often take what are pagan traditions and we say, but these should be transformed into Mm -hmm. Christian celebrations. And um, um, because there's always this opportunity to celebrate who we are in God. And I think it's, I what's think wrong that's kind with of celebrating life, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Life is the gift of God. Exactly. So I just thought that was interesting. Um, I will say, you know, if you think about the way some people celebrate their birthdays, well, you know, yeah, it gets, uh, you know, I can understand the caution, but, the, but just the idea of celebrating life, that's, that's a beautiful notion, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So now going to a different space, Probably the biggest figure in this whole thing of the Reformation is John Fisher. Um, and John Fisher is um, an English um, English pastor and theologian. Um, he's uh, he's 
actually would be a little bit older than uh, Martin Luther. He was born about 15 years before Martin Luther. Um, so he becomes involved with the, with the, the events of the, Refor the Reformation. And he's actually one of the first to become involved with humanist learning in England. And so he actually is the one who invited Erasmus to come to England and be a lecturer there mm. and was the first one to push kind of the Greek language really? and Hebrew within cool. um, Cambridge University. So he was a humanist. But Way to go, John Fisher. <laughs> but obviously, yeah, well, but obviously came from a scholastic background. Yeah. Um, and so you see this mix in him. But anyway, he was the tutor to Henry VII's mother. And then... Um, and later on, just became involved uh, as one of the main preachers um, within the within the uh, uh, the English Church, right? Uh, with and um, what's really interesting here, he 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 latches on to kind of an anti-Luther polemic, and he was the first one in fifteen. Really? Yeah. Yeah, despite that, well, along with like Erasmus and some of these other mm. folks that never break right. from, and um, Sir Thomas More that never break with the Roman Catholic tradition, right. he's on that side. And in 1521, he led the first Catholic response to um, attack faith alone and scripture alone. Really? Yes. Wow. Um, but why he is known is for his martyrdom and because of the desire of Henry VIII to divorce Catherine of Aragon. Mm. And he argued for the validity of Henry's marriage to Catherine. Because remember, Henry is trying to get it annulled because Catherine was, um, had been married to his brother prior to that, his brother Arthur, who died early. And so then he, and he always felt that that was um, questioned whether that was a valid marriage. And, mm. and of course, the Lutheran side was saying, you know, you could count this as an invalid marriage. This doesn't count. And But it's in this case where he says, look, I'm like John the Baptist holding up the sanctity of marriage. Now, again, the first one they're not dealing with right. here, right? It's interesting. Mm. Yeah. But the sanctity Just kind of, of marriage. smooth over that one, right? Exactly. But I will defend the sanctity of marriage. I will go to my death. Wow. To do this, and he is actually he is actually beheaded in the end, mm. um, and in 1535, um, and uh, uh, because obviously Henry is going to go through with this, and he does, and he marries Anne Boleyn. Of course, we know how that works. Now, but Henry, if I get the if I get the chronology right, he would have been a younger man to John Fisher. Yes. Yeah. 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 So would John have been more like the age of Henry's father? Probably. So that's interesting that you've got you've got you've got advisor to Henry the Seventh's mother, mm -hmm. um, and, and so he's got some he's got some roots in the family. He does. He does. And and just because because Henry the Eighth doesn't like what John is John Fisher's trying to say, you know, he he does away with him. Well, and remember that Henry the Eighth's first wife, Catherine of Aragon, is considerably older. Uh -huh. Henry, I don't right. know if people realize that right. quite a bit older. And so, um, you know, as she's moving through the marriage and has miscarriage after miscarriage after mm. miscarriage, because remember she has her daughter, Mary, mm -hmm. um, but, uh, there the begins a point at which can she continue to have children? And 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 Henry liked Catherine clearly liked Catherine, but he needed this heir. I mean, this was part of the whole history of it. So, you know, Catherine she lived; she was allowed to live and right. and, and 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 stayed in a, a castle. But um, very interesting. So this is kind of a funny way to to uh, to, to read this. Henry the Eighth was the new was the new Herod, and Boleyn was the new Herodias. John Fisher was the new John the Baptist. Wow. Had Anne Boleyn been married before? No. So so the the, the analogy was a bit imprecise. Oh yes. It, <laughs> it, it of course it was imprecise, but I don't I, I don't I think that was the idea that they were why, worried why about. Why let that. precision get in the way of a good analogy, a, a, right? Exactly. The idea was that they were just really trying to point out um, uh, really trying to use the the, the horror of that mm -hmm. incident to say, look, this this is just as horrible. this is just as horrible. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. But an interesting case, um, and of course, ultimately, um, you know, Anne Boleyn is going to be considered to be a seductress. So again, the seductress concept mm. that comes through, and Anne Boleyn is going to be blamed as being a witch. She's that's why she's ultimately executed herself, and the blame 
it's taken off of Henry VIII. And so that's, again, I'm, I'm, I'm aware of this, probably because I've taught women's history, but there's this, there's this kind of ongoing assumption that, that women can use their wily powers to do mm-hmm. all kinds of things. And the men are helpless and the to men are helpless. Defend, defend yeah, themselves exactly, against it, Exactly, right? exactly. They don't, have, they don't have the wherewithal to be able to, to make their own choices or stand I, in their exactly. own strength. Exactly. It's just bizarre. <laughs> it's just bizarre. Yeah. And, you know, part of that, Part of that really goes to kind of the courtly stuff that went in the medieval period. We're putting women on a pedestal and the poor, hapless, dorky man can't do anything to, you know, help and, 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 and be good enough to reach her. I mean, this all fits into this context mm. um, of, of a female identity. Um, and then the other piece, and I don't want to dwell on this, but there was a little bit of discussion also in England about the nature of oaths and vows mm. and um, what does it mean what does it what does a vow mean what does an oath mean and are you bound by God mm. for any oath um, and which ones are, are are believable which ones aren't and so there's discussion of well Herod apparently made this oath to or vow to uh, Salome that he she could give him anything she wanted so is that under God? Or not. Mm. And so it comes into play there a little bit. And in the end, they come down on the end of, well, you know, only things that would be of God can be considered to oh, be appropriate really? vows. You can't yeah. vow on th- things that would be right. anti God's who God is. Yeah. God would not call on Against you. Against God's character. Yeah. Purposes, God, yeah. Character. And, and I think that's an interesting point mm. for today, too. Mm. You know, God does, you know, can God do whatever? God wants, or will God do what God? What is consistent, was with, consistent God's with God's and character? Yeah. Exactly, and yeah. I think that kind of ties on some modern theology today. Hmm. Just because you take an oath, if it is an oath under duress or an oath that right. is that is filled with scandal, it really doesn't count right. in God's God's world. So that's what that another little discussion that. Uh, well, and and I think we've seen all too often today that. People can people are capable of saying just about anything if they want to just to just to mm-hmm. get their way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. So that's uh, that's the reformers. All right. Thanks, Christy. Thanks. Hi, everybody. We are back. And uh, I think we want to spend a little time thinking about the resurrection of Christ um, and well, ultimately his final, his final um, coming uh, is, is kind of the, the solution or the end to all of these, um, these injustices. And I didn't probably articulate that very clearly, but I'm going to have Alan kind of jump in and share his thoughts on this. Well, and I'm thinking about two things. I'm thinking about what you said about uh, Calvin's comments about the disciples taking the body of John sort of in anticipation of what was to come, you know, out of out mm-hmm. of their faith that there would be there would be a resolution to this injustice of of John being executed, mm-hmm. and then I'm thinking also about the notion that I brought up about how, you know, um, perhaps in the narrative of Mark's gospel, we're just we're meant to see the resurrection of Christ as sort of the final resolution of this injustice that mm-hmm. is per- perpetrated against John the Baptist, and and perhaps even to point us forward as Christians mm-hmm. to the, 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 you know, the fulfillment of the kingdom of God as the resolution right. of all injustices. Right, right. And, and t- that's, a, that's a big part of my faith and my hope. Um, you know, um, it, it's, it's all too easy for someone who spends his life in the church to almost have a Pollyannish view mm-hmm. of life in the world. And, you know, if anything, the last year or so, you know, you can't, you can't hold on to that anymore uh, in, in light of, of, of just, the, just the blatant injustices that we have seen that have been per- perpetrated right. in our society and in the, and in the world. And, um, you know, I, I think about Aung San Suu Kyi you know, who, who was the Democratic, uh, sort of the head of the Democratic opposition to, yes. the, to, to the, basically the military junta in, in Myanmar for, for decades and kept under house arrest, saw her as this great hero, you know, but then when um, there was a problem with the Muslim Rohingya 
in the northern part of Myanmar, the army, ultimately under, you know, Aung San Suu Kyi, you know, um, <laughs> committed atrocities against these folks because they were Muslim mm-hmm. and not uh, Buddhist. And, you know, and, and because of their ethnicity. And, and, and you know, I, it was so disappointing to see that. And it's just a reminder to me that, you know, no human leader is going to completely, uh, is going to completely embody justice. It just, it's not going to happen. And, and and so when we live in a world that is so full of injustice, mm-hmm. and we're becoming so much more, I think, aware of that um, in, in this day and time, um, how do we hold on to Christian faith without being Pollyannish? Right. You know, to me, right. I, so to me, I think it's you know we we see we see the injustice of the death of Christ, yep. we see the victory of the cross coming out of that. And we see that as pointing forward to an ultimate victory right. by which God's justice is established. And by that, you know, I understand the Bible to refer to God's justice as God righting all the wrongs, God um, 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 restoring all those who've been oppressed, right. you know, uh, removing you know, all the violence I think of, you know, they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, you know, Mm -hmm. those kind of images. And, and I hold on to that. Um, that is, that is for me at the end of the day, you know, that is crucial for my being able to be a Christian in this world who hopefully, hopefully has my, I I hope to have my eyes wide open to the things that are Mm -hmm. going on in Mm -hmm. this world but I still maintain my faith in what right. God is doing. Well, and I think it's beautiful, and I agree 100%. I think the problem, and, and the problem that we see, is that our experience of life is so now, and particularly our experience of life is so, with, with the modern age, so individual. Mm-hmm. It's now, it's individual, it's, it's don't wait, it's immediate satisfaction. I mean, I, I keep thinking of, the big thing right now is, is fasting, right? And we're going to Oh, add, really? Oh, you didn't know this? Oh, no. yes. Inter- um, 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 this this pattern of doing brief fasts, because our bodies as, as human beings aren't meant to eat all the meals that we eat, but rather we're supposed to be fasting. And I, I laugh at that because that is one image versus the, Every time I go anywhere, I get something good to eat, and it's usually sweet or salty snacks or Or fatty. And and I could go, I like to go to the basketball game. Why? Because I could go buy a a huge Kit Kat and a popcorn and a a Diet Coke. And so maybe a regular Coke. (laughs) Right. Maybe a regular Coke. So, you know, we're just. we just feed that nowness. You know, now that you mentioned, I have heard of people doing cleanses, fasting. cleansing, cleansing themselves. And it's like, why are you going to put all that stuff in your body in the first place? Why well, not just one. eat healthy all the time? But that's part of the <laughs> weight loss stratagems now. And and I'm not really, it, it's working. For, yeah. My, my, my sister-in-law's doing it. Sorry. Kit won't be listening, but if she is, yeah, she does this intermittent fasting and it's helping her lose weight, uh. um, which is, which is fine. But it is an interesting space about how we experience life mm-hmm. now even versus before and we our experience always we always want these short term well if i can if i can satisfy my sweet tooth and it makes me happy if i can on my iphone you know these images that just can make me happy all the time i can't put up with those things that are truly injustice i can't that has to be remedied now, now. and yeah. because we can't remedy it now then we're willing to take what we could get so it, 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 it corruption i think it feels corruption mm. Um, you know, I think it fuels that human sin to just keep, uh, as long as it satisfies me, then I don't have to worry about what happens to the next guy. I mean, I think it's one of the huge problems with some of our attitudes towards environment. Well, I don't want to give up all of my income or all of my, all of my benefits now, if I have to start cutting things that are going to help people in the future, because I'm only worried about now. I mean, I think, I think that's a real problem. So I agree with you, but I think the hardest problem is how do you get other people to, Mm. how do you, how do you live into Christ? And I think, I think part of that's those spiritual disciplines that kind of pull you into. And I think it's really spending time thinking about, about 
your ultimate purpose or how you're called to your life and are you fulfilled in this me now situation or or are you thankful for every day or all those little pieces that we learn as is part of our Christian discipline you know as I think about this I feel I feel so out of step with culture because <laughs> you know I mean you know that I lost 30 pounds last year but that was by altering my lifestyle by changing my eating habits mm-hmm. permanently you know not some intermittent, you know, kind of quick fix thing. And, right, and, and right. I've kept the weight off because I changed my lifestyle. Right. Wow, what a novel idea that we're going to adopt a lifestyle that's healthy, or what a novel idea that we're going to adopt an, a lifestyle of following Christ in discipleship. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm just, it's, this is like something maybe that's old-fashioned or out of date, you know, that mm-hmm. I would say, well, that, yeah, that, that's, that's the way to live. Because it seems like, you know, the, the culture in which we're living mm-hmm. is, is that's just, that's, that doesn't compute for most folks, right, I guess. Right, right. I, I was thinking about this family I, I did a funeral for, and um, th- th- deeply Christian family, and, and uh, also a big football family. And uh, the, the, uh, the son, who had gone through many issues himself, but um, but staunchly Christian, and, and, and he lived his life as a thankful for every day, and he tried to tried to bring it to his players. And I remember he came and he had he had like thirty five what he called game day scriptures, you know, wow. and yeah. these were just part of who he was. Yeah, it was exactly. part of this discipline exactly. of 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 study and practice and being thankful for every day and every every and I just it was such a beautiful experience um and and this this sense of of yeah loss but just sense of joy at mm-hmm. at the, the, the being in a space the hope the, the hope. hope that he had exactly well and you know i think that's a great analogy because i didn't come to this stance of faith that you know the resurrection points us forward to the final triumph of the kingdom of god as the resolution of all injustices in a week or a month or a year, right? You know, I, that was something that is, that hope and that faith is something that's grown in me over decades mm-hmm. of of worship, over decades of personal spiritual discipline, over decades of Bible reading, over decades of study. You know, and, and it didn't come to me right quickly. I, I don't think and it I, comes to most people quickly because, and, and that's that may be the challenge. Is you know what we're about is something that's long term you know you yeah. you can only you can only do this in the long term you you can only live into this christian faith and live into this lifestyle of being a follower of jesus long term it doesn't work in the short term it doesn't work in the short term and yet that's our experience well if i'm not happier in a month because i decided to join a church then I can't believe a God anymore. Well, that or I'm going to go find a I'm gonna better go find church. A better church. I'm going <laughs> to, you know, and well, God's not doing this for me. And you're kind of missing. You're kind of missing the whole call on on you as a, a disciple. And it's uh, an interesting space. And but yet, I agree with you. I think, you know, if you truly believe in God and the goodness of creation, then it really has to come to that conclusion at the end. I mean, that's yeah. the only way yeah. that's a world, only a worldview that only makes sense in my space. If, if you really think something else, uh, if you adopt an idea that creation is bad and the mm-hmm. destruction, complete destruction, the world chaos, is filled with devils trying to endure us. <laughs> imagine that's a, that's just not a life. Mm-hmm. I, I suppose it's the, a simple way to look at faith, but that's not a life I want to, or, one, or how about how into. about how about the outlook that the he, the one who 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 dies with the most toys wins, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. No, that doesn't work. Right. It doesn't. It doesn't work. But yeah. what, when you think about, um, but when you think about one of my one of my things right now, and one of the things that's been really really working in my heart is a lot of times we'll move elderly parents near us mm-hmm. to um, care for them. But one of the trends I've noticed is they either the the elderly parents and or the family does not actually have those elderly people engage with the church, mm-hmm. maybe because they a don't think they can contribute or b they're 
you know, they don't know anybody. They're not part right. of that fold. Right. But I see people feeling um, disengaged from, from the family of Christ. And I think of, of churches that are hungry to step in and care for. Mm-hmm. And and so I actually just wrote a, an article for our church paper on have your have your people join the church. Yeah. Have us be part of your radar. Well, have and goodness, us, with yeah. all the technology we have now, they exactly. can participate in some way, shape, or form. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Even if you are simply, you know, playing the service for them yeah. um, on Sunday mornings or whatever the case, a lot, whatever the case may be, there's just these, this, this way to make them, to, to, to add them into that specific fellowship. Yes, indeed. Um, and so that's, that's been on my, on my heart lately. Well, as you know, we're doing a hybrid worship pattern here. We're meeting in, 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 in person, but we're also broadcasting on Zoom. And one of my main motivations for doing that is because I know there are people in our congregation, in our community, in our family of faith. Right. In our family of faith who can't physically join us. Right. And they need to feel connected to this yeah, congregation I, that's, at this it's, time. It's yeah. a very neat idea that, that Alan's doing with his church here. And, and so these folks are, they're present. It's yes, very, it's, it's amazing. It's very new age. I, well, <laughs> I'm, yeah, it's not my idea. I, I borrowed it from Bruce Reyes Chow and a number of others. Yeah. But, but um, you know, as one of the things I'm, I was thinking about as we were talking about this long-term versus short-term thinking Part of what helped me make that transition was all the things that I mentioned before, you know, and including, you know, praying the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. That has been such an important part of my faith journey mm-hmm. and my, my, my spiritual practice, mm-hmm. just really living into the Lord's Prayer. Right. But part of what happened was, um, you know, that I went through a major life transition about 2000. Uh, about 21 years ago, um, I was going through a divorce. I had I had walked away from my academic career. I really didn't know what I wanted to do with my life or what what my life was worth. And I, I was underemployed for several years, and and I I had some time on my hands, so I started a project of my own. I had always loved Jurgen Moltmann's The Church and the Power of the Spirit, and I decided I'm going to start with the theology of hope, mm-hmm. and I'm going to read all the way through the coming of God. And it took me eight years to do that. Mm-hmm. And, but, but Moltmann, well, this is one of the reasons why he's my favorite Reformed theologian. He, he articulates this beautiful the- theology mm-hmm. of, you know, that, that Christ's resurrection points us forward to the final victory mm-hmm. of God in which creation will be restored right. to the place where it was at the beginning. Very right. good. And that means all the wrongs will be righted. Mm-hmm. The oppressors will be, res- will be redeemed along with the, the oppressed, you know, yeah. and, and yeah. it's a beautiful image of, mm-hmm. of faith. And, um, th- that project really trans helped transform my faith along with the other aspects right. that I mentioned. And, you know, it's, again, it's not something that was a, a quick, transition for me right and as i think about that and and some of the things that i think about i like to think of well gosh where where can i go to be part of that you know where's god calling me to be part of that Mm -hmm. part of that reality and and that that allows you to fly absolutely uh, yeah um as if on eagle's wings right yes indeed yes indeed (laughs) well it, it you know it i'm i'm the kind of person with a soft enough heart that when i see injustice anywhere it 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 really weighs heavily on me. Uh, and so, and I, I mean, it really is disturbing. It is. Um, but at the same time, you know, through it all, I have the joy of this faith yeah. that is inspired by Jesus Christ. Yeah. You know, and so I think, as I think about our text, you know, I, I actually kind of like Calvin's reading of it better than the way I would have approached it before we had this discussion, because I would have thought of it. These are, these are John's disciples and they're just caring for their master in the proper way that they felt like it. And they're just bearing him. Mm -hmm. And that's that. But if they really are acting as Calvin suggested out of some sense of looking forward to a future 
where God would set things right, whether they were mm-hmm. specifically looking forward to the resurrection of Jesus or whether they were simply looking forward to the God who would set all mm-hmm. things right. You know, th- that brings a little, that brings some hope into this very strange passage. Yeah, it does. It yeah. does. So, yeah. yeah. I like that. Yeah, it's very interesting to, to process for sure. Yeah. Well, I hope that gives you some things to uh, chew on, everybody, and thanks for joining us. Thanks, Christy. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.